Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown for your entertainment. I am your second-timed host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries with my lovely wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Good evening, Goldie Ann. Hey there, Gary. Are you ready for our first second-time episode? (laughs) I think so. First, second time. Yes. I know, it's kind of complicated to talk about, but this is very cool. We're presenting our first sequel episode this week. Oh, I thought we were talking about something else. I mean, sex and time is always better. Sorry? Uh, no, this... We're not talking about that? If you check what our podcast is usually about, it's about cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I don't (laughs) think that falls into it. (laughs) Other mysteries. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be presenting our second part to our Mothman episodes. Awesome. I also want to remind everyone that, uh, we now have a YouTube channel and I'm still uploading videos onto it. So it's growing very quickly. If you want to check it out, see the show notes. The cool thing is, is that a lot of it is TikTok videos, which are less than three minutes long. The TikTok king. Well, it's a great way of telling a short story and there's so many of them. I mean, by the time it's finished, there'll be 200 of them. And if you figure out they're about three minutes long, so that's 600 minutes uh, where so like 10 hours once everything is done. What? Yeah. Jeez. So you could you could watch or listen to Within the Mist TikToks for 10 hours straight. Well, sounds like a Saturday night. I'll bring the popcorn. Okay. But before we get into that, Goldie Ann... Did you know that Bruce Willis has been cast to play the lead role in the sequel to The Lord of the Rings? No. I'm trying to wrap my brain around what you just said. I'm just going to say no. Well, it's true. The film's going to be called Old Hobbits Die Hard. Oh, my God. Can I say no again? Oh, my God. Well, you can't take it back. (sighs) I know. You can thank me motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just so everyone knows, today's episode contains stories about a monstrous creature that attacks people and may or may not have been involved in the collapsing of the Silver Bridge that cost many people their lives. These may be disturbing to some of our listeners. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little scared. Listener discretion is always advised. Stop. So we're going we're going over the bridge again? We're going over the entire 13th month, and we're going to be expanding on it with some of the news stories that I brought up. Okay. I just didn't know if that was meant to be in there or not. Nope. It <clears> totally <throat> is. Okay. I, I, I may be mad, but I, I have a method to my madness. When are you going to share that? I'm sharing it now. Oh, okay. In our previous episode, we discussed the 13 months of terror for the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. During this time, there was over a hundred encounters occurring with people seeing a large, man-like creature in the shadows, with 10-foot wings and bright red eyes. Some tried to claim that it was a sandhill crane, others that it was an owl. But what if the theory goes even farther than that? Because not only were people seeing creatures in the woods, 
This wasn't the only strange occurrence as multiple reports started filling in about strange lights in the sky and meeting with people who may appear normal at first but then start showing bizarre irregularities. Researcher and writer John Keel came to the town and began discovering that there was more to the story than just an undiscovered creature in the TNT area. There was a connection to unidentified flying objects and visitors from the other world. Possibly even the Mothman itself was one of these aliens. So now if you are ready let's take a walk within the mist and discuss the Mothman, the alien. That just sounds like a starting of a comedy hour. Let's start with chapter one, the UFO flap of 1966. Goldian, do you know what a flap is? I know what a flapper is. Okay, <laughs> little bit different. There's some similarities, but others are different. A flap is technically a term utilized when there are multiple UFO observations. Oh. And 1966 had a huge flap of unidentified flying objects going, flying overhead. The most famous of the Mothman encounters, as a reminder, is the Scarberry and Millette race with the creature that we discussed in the last episode. So for a timeline, this occurred on November 15th of 1966, which acts as the starting date for the sightings of the creature that would continue for the next 13 months. However, the incidents could be connected to multiple UFO sightings in the area even earlier during the 1966 year. For example, as early as March, a Mrs. Kelly, a pseudonym because she asked that her name be withheld, was waiting in her car for her children near the Point Pleasant School. She never expected anything unusual was going to occur, but then, she happened to notice something in the clouded blue skies above the school. That was when she saw an unbelievable apparition low in the sky. The object looked like a glimmering metal disc and was hovering directly above the playground. It was not moving, but held its position in the air perfectly. It allowed Mrs. Kelly to observe a door-like opening exposed at its rim. Standing at the entrance to this UFO was a man. The unusual man was not standing in the doorway. He was standing outside of the object, floating in midair. He wore a silvery skin-tight costume and had very long silvery hair. He was pretty much looking pretty dreamy, and he was staring intently down into the schoolyard. The mother watched the floating man for a long moment until her children bounded up to the car, just breaking her attention. This sounds so typical. She's staring at a Fabio alien up in the sky, and here comes the kids that breaks her concentration. <laughs> and to make it worse, when she did look to the sky again, the man and the metallic disc object were both gone. She decided not to tell anyone about this strange vision at the time because she was attaching religious significance to the appearance of the silver man. So to her, it wasn't an alien craft, it was more of a sign from God. I guess uh, in her mind, the man with the long flowing silver hair was more godlike than alien. 
Now, when she finally did report the event, Mrs. Kelly would also describe how she and her children would watch bright orbs race across the night sky, almost nightly close to the ground in a deep gully behind her home. So her and her family were seeing space aliens for weeks before any report of them were being made. Mrs. Mary Heyer, the local reporter for the Athens Messenger, who would later break the story of the Mothman creature, also had her own encounter with an unidentified object before the Mothman's appearance. She had been driving along the Ohio side of the river during the summer when a sudden glint in the sky attracted her attention. At first, I thought it was a plane, she recalled, quoting, Then I got a better look at it. It was perfectly round, and I couldn't make out what it was, but I didn't give it any thought at the time. This encounter with the UFO would later act as a reason for her work with John Keel. There was even another event when another round object chose to hover above Tiny's Restaurant just outside of Point Pleasant that same summer of 1966. It was seen by several customers, including the wife of a local police officer. Uh-oh. Well, you would think that that would give it some credibility. However, the UFO sightings were not reported to the law or press in Point Pleasant, although there were many such sightings all summer long. Their occurrences came and went unexplained at the time. Now, even a month before the Mothman's grand appearance, attorney John Fujinovac was traveling along State Route 66, the same road that ran alongside the TNT area. It was then that his young son became frightened by a strangely silent object with windows and fast flickering and revolving lights. It seemed to be hovering above their car before flying off into the distance. So putting all this together, during March through the summer before November of 1966, there would be a great number of UFO sightings in the Point Pleasant area. But it would not just be flying saucers in the sky that people saw. It was only a matter of time before someone would have a face-to-face with something from the beyond. Not Fabio, but Chapter 2, The Grinning Man. On November 2nd, so we're getting closer and closer to the Scarberry event, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, Warren Derenberger, a sewing machine salesman living in Mineral Wells, West Virginia, was returning from a business trip to Marietta, Ohio. He had to stop his car and pull off to the side of the highway to adjust the sewing machine in the back of his truck. Once he had it secured and got back on the road, he noticed strange lights ahead of him. Thinking that the lights were police officers, he stopped, but to only discover that the lights didn't belong to a car, but to what he said was an aircraft that looked like, quote, a kerosene lamp chimney. What's that? I mean, I know what a kerosene lamp is, but chimney. Well, it's just the upper extended part part of it. okay. So it's kind of long and cylindrical. Darren Berger said a man stepped out of the craft and approached his truck. Quote, he looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being. His face looked like he had a good tan, a deep suntan. He was not too dark, but it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot 
and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back and it was a dark brown. And he seemed to have a thick head of hair. I wonder if he had a good tan. He did focus on it a little much, <laughs> I will admit. But he was trying to be he descriptive. Was and in fact, continuing on with his description, oh God. he stated that the man's eyebrows, his face, his features were very normal. And I don't believe he looked any different from any other man that you would meet on the street. However, he wasn't normal. He had a large grin and kept his arms folded with his hands under his armpits. And though he spoke to Darren Berger, his smile never moved. He spoke telepathically. So now we have a man who has a Joker's grin and basically talks with his mind. That new movie coming out, Smile. <laughs> Freaky. I'm hoping that that's not alien involved, but we will have to wait and see. According to Darren Bird, he asked him to roll down the window on his right-hand side of his truck, and Darren Berger obliged. The man stood there, and he first asked me what I was called, and I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. Then he asked me, Why are you frightened? The man continued to speak to Darren Berger telepathically. Don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. We mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. The salesman did tell him his name, and the alien replied that his name was Cold. Indrid Cold. This is a name that will pop up from time to time when you talk about paranormal and UFO encounters. The grinning man is named Indrid Cold. Now, naturally, Darren Berger reported his encounter to the police, and by the next day, the media frenzy surrounding the story took off. The salesman agreed to be interviewed on live television, and also present at the interview were officers from the state police, Wood County Airport, the Parkerburg Police, and even a representative from the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. The case was drawing national attention. For 30 minutes, the men peppered Darren Berger with questions about the strange occurrence. This would not be the only appearance in Point Pleasant area. Indrid Cold would also make another appearance while during the same time. The Lilly family had been reporting that poltergeist activities in their homes, such as diamond-shaped lights, were occurring. Then... The Lily's daughter, Linda, was sleeping one night and awoke to see a man standing over her in her bedroom. According to her, quote, it was a man, a big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked again, he was gone. So we have an alien who pops up to roadside help as well as appearing in children's bedrooms. So probably not the best tactic to take when you come in peace. The situation in Point Pleasant now had strange lights in the sky and a grinning man claiming to have come in peace to learn about us. The timelines were starting to converge. 
and we are now colliding with the infamous Mossman Night of November 15, 1966. Chapter 3, Exploding Televisions. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's never good when your TV explodes on you. So, we are talking about the same night, November 15, 1966. In Centerpoint, a small community located about 20 miles from Clarksburg, West Virginia. The Partridge family, Merle, his wife, and their six children were all at the family farm on Pine Fork. The family pet, a three-year-old, 110-pound German Shepherd named Bandit, was Aww. on the porch outside. Why are you awing? Because it's a big dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, German Shepherds get pretty large. I like dogs. At around 10.30 p.m., or shortly after, the television started cutting in and out. What had been images of the movie, Wild and Wonderful, featuring a white French poodle named Monsieur Cognac, was now replaced by a herringbone pattern. Merle, the patriarch of the family, got up and tried to correct the television, but then it started making a horrible, high-pitched noise which he described as almost like a generator starting up. Bandit began howling outside, presumably bothered by the television set's strange, ear-splitting screeching. Everything was building up, with the noises from the television and Bandit's howling, just before the television tube exploded, breaking out the glass and ruining the whole set, which had to be replaced later. Mr. Partridge walked out onto the porch with a flashlight to check on Bandit. He felt the hair raise up on his arms, and at about that time, Bandit sprinted off the porch and into the field. He was headed towards the direction of either a small barn or pump house around a football field's length away from the house. Bandit's fur was bristled, and he acted as if he was about to attack something. Mr. Partridge called out to him to come back. But the usually obedient dog did not return to his master. When a flashlight was shown in the direction the dog was headed, it picked up what was then described as flashing red lights of a mechanical nature, unlike anything Partridge had ever seen before. Partridge went to go for his gun, but he stopped and didn't go after his dog. Jerk! Well, it seems that both the husband and wife and the kids all returned to the living room before inexplicably going to bed. Their actions were almost trance-like. Oh, poor puppy. Just I will know, have to agree with that. I would not do that. Well, you would if you were mind-controlled. Nothing can take my mind off my dogs. This is true. Me, on the other hand, yeah, you'd probably forget me in a minute. <laughs> I love my dogs. <laughs> Well, in regards to the dog Bandit, he never returned home that night or the following day. And at some point within the next few days, Merle Partridge investigated the area. He could see evidence of where Bandit had run off the porch and through the grass to the area near the barn. Something more than a helicopter had been out there, and the grass was all flattened in the field. Not quite a crop circle, but you could obviously tell that something landed and took off in the grass. He could see the dog's paw prints in the mud going around in a circle, 
as if it was chasing its own tail. But there were no prints or other evidence to suggest that the dog ran off anywhere else. It was like the dog had just vanished. I don't like the story. Okay, then you remember, listener discretion is advised. Because now, the incident with the Mothman in the Scarberries and Mallets occurred an hour later after Bandit went chasing off after the red lights. What I had left out of the story in the last episode is that Linda Scarberry, who was seated in the passenger seat, saw what appeared to be a large, dead dog near the old C.C. Lewis farm lying by the road as they were racing against the Mothman behind them. After summoning help and heading back to the TNT area less than an hour later, the dog carcass was gone, nowhere to be seen. All of this occurred around 90 minutes after Bandit disappeared from the Partridge Farm, making it seem fairly obvious that whatever had happened to Bandit wasn't anything good. Mm. Also, during the Scarberry Millette encounter, as the deputy who traveled back out to the area attempted to call back to his station on his police radio, he was greeted with garbled, high-pitched sounds like tape-recorded voices being played at exceedingly high speed. These were the same screeching sounds similar to what Partridge's television did just before it exploded. It's weird how these are interchanging. The whole situation around the Mossman interweaves in and out with different plot details. In fact, there's a question. Could the flattened grass and red lights that were seen by Merle and Bandit have been a spacecraft? that dropped off the winged entity that would terrorize the community for the next 13 months? Wow, that's crazy. The timeline does fit that both of these happened pretty much at the same time. Now, that possibility seems supported by the events on November 17th when the same Partridge family was outside their home with a group of four unidentified individuals on the backyard deck. It was on that day that an immense shadow fell over them. And according to Merle, all at once the sky just blackened out over top of them. Merle would later describe that what eclipsed the sun was impossible to describe. But it was humongous and he couldn't see anything else. It was some kind of mechanical object with a dull gray finish. It had a lot of portals in it and a large number of rivets. Don't they say the Mothman is dull gray? That is the common color of the Mothman, yes. Mm. That he's a dull gray in color. So kind of matches the color of this uh, mechanized object that was blocking out the sun. But before the six witnesses had a chance to understand what it was they were seeing, the object vanished as mysteriously as it arrived. Merle Partridge would claim the next day that he was bombarded by people asking questions. It wasn't only the reporters that came out, but allegedly so did an Air Force colonel, a detective, and others. The family was later pranked and ridiculed, and they received strange phone calls of just beeping noises. Partridge wished he had never told anyone about what had happened and his sighting of the unidentified flying object. Eventually, he would give an interview with Gray Barker, which ended up in the book The Silver Bridge. According to Merle, 
He reported that for about a week following the incident, everything was eerily quiet and devoid of the usual outdoor nature noises, as though something had chased everything away. Chapter 4, Return to the Thompsons' Home Now in our last episode, I talked about the night when Raymond Wamesley's sister, Marcella, had come face to face with a creature of the Mothman. She had fallen into a trance with her three-year-old Tina in her arms. The event caused Marcella to nearly smother the child, but later there was more to the story. As it was reported by Raymond, that he had seen more than just the creature that night. As he had been driving to the Thompsons' home in the TNT area, he had noticed a strange red light cruising above the car that didn't resemble any kind of airplane he had ever seen before. However, he had been focused on the winding road and soon forgot about the red light. It was when they were leaving the door of the Thompsons' home and returning to the car that he caught sight of the weird UFO once again. This time, he attempted to urge his big sister, Marcella, to look up in the sky, but she was busy with the bundle of the sleepy toddler. I'm surprised they even let her hold her after that. Well, this was during, this is still that same night. I know, but it was after the trance, right? When she no, this is her. still, this is before the trance occurred. So the timeline is is that Raymond Wamsley, his wife, and his sister Marcella, who was carrying Tina, went to the Thompsons' home, were told that the parents were ha- gone, and as they were walking back from oh, the car, yeah. okay. Raymond saw the red lights. Right. And he was trying to get Marcella to look, but she was busy trying to get Tina in the car. Right. And it was as if by some cosmic coincidence that right after the UFO disappeared from the sky, the creature rose from the ground and made its appearance to Marcella. That's when we have the incident with her and the child. It was almost as if the Mothman was hiding from the UFO. Was the UFO dropping off the Mothman to the yard of the Thompsons' home? Or was the UFO searching for the creature, just like the hundreds of gun-toting others were doing just the same about a mile away within the woods of the TNT forest? There is a possibility that the Mothman was a passenger from a UFO or attempting to escape from other UFOs. This would help to explain why he is able to fly without flapping its large wings. More reports of UFOs would continue to attract the orbs in the sky, especially along Route 7, expanding the terror beyond the TNT area. Chapter 5 Route 7. Now, just two days following the Scarberry and Millette's encounter with the Mothman, there would be a music teacher only identified as Mrs. Gorse who testified that she was awakened at 4.45 in the morning at her home across the river from the TNT area in Cheshire, Ohio. So we're outside the TNT area. And it seems that her small dog was barking. So she woke up and made her way to the kitchen to determine why her dog was so distressed. She glanced outside from the window and saw a massive, self-illuminated orb hovering at treetop level over a field on the other side of Route 7. She would later report to John Keel that it was the size of a small house, 
and it was segmented into sections that flashed an array of red and green lights. When she went to awaken her husband and returned to the kitchen window, the object had vanished entirely only to return to the area of Route 7 later that same afternoon. That was when a 17-year-old anonymous boy was driving along the road close to the Gorse home when his car was suddenly dive-bombed by a huge man-shaped creature in a strikingly unbird-like manner. It was the Mothman in the same area where just a few hours earlier Mrs. Gorse saw a UFO. The Mothman creature pursued the boy in his vehicle the better part of a mile before giving up the chase. By coincidence, both UFO and the creature were in the same location. But if you thought you could avoid the strangeness going on in the area of Point Pleasant by just staying inside, it would soon become obvious that the strangeness would come to you. Oh, well, that's just lovely. Chapter 6, The Strange Phone Calls now, I already mentioned how the deputy was trying to make a radio call and was hearing strange noises on his radio. The residents of Point Pleasant were also harassed by UFOs and the winged Mothman were also receiving strange phone calls. Some of the voices on the phones were making predictions in electronic voices that sounded so unnatural. Other times, there would be high-speed shrieking and talking so fast that no one could understand what they were saying. All I can think of is the old dial-up internet. <laughs> that would be a very good description of what they were hearing. And for the generation that didn't have to go with the dial-up uh, internet. Who used to get their internet in the mail? Ooh, you guys are so lucky the way it is now. Because that is probably the most god-awful sound I've ever yes, heard. Yes, worse than a fax machine, worse than anything. Agreed. Now, to the Scarberries, Roger and Linda, who started much of the Mothman craze, they received so many of these bizarre phone calls to their home that they ended up leaving it and moving in with Linda's parents. So it was like they couldn't escape the Mothman and they were the phone calls started following them at home. Another case was Thomas Urey who on November 25th of 1966 was driving past the TNT area early in the morning. He would report that he was followed by what he described as a giant bird with a 10-foot wingspan. The creature easily kept pace with the shoe salesman even at speeds of 75 miles per hour. He would later tell his story to Mary Heyer that the creature swooped towards his car before disappearing entirely. And, like the Scarberries, after his encounter, there would be the phone calls. Oh gosh, seven days. <laughs> These ones would be entirely high speed speaking. So if they were saving seven days, they were so fast that he couldn't understand it. Didn't we used to get a fair. Didn't we get a, like a week's worth of free internet back then? Maybe, maybe that was their way of saying that it was over. Other phone calls that he received had strange beeping sounds as though it was being sent in Morse code. This entire strangeness of phone calls, the Mothman, UFOs, would continue until one man would arrive to town to bring everything together. Uh-oh. Who was it? Chapter 7, John Keel. 
As we mentioned in part one, it was the incident with the Mothman creature and Roger Scarberry's Chevy that initiated Mary Heyer of the Athens Messenger to place the story on the AP wire. This gave the small town story national attention. The news release also attracted the attention of John Keel, author and paranormal investigator, who decided on a whim to leave his New York City home to visit Point Pleasant during its height of strange encounters. Mary Heyer extended her cooperation and knowledge to the investigator, and the two of them would become the best of friends before the 13 months of encounters would end. He, with his expertise of paranormal investigations, and her, with the amount of respect she had from the people of Point Pleasant, soon began piecing together the story of the Mothman. To me, Mary Heyer and John Keel kind of makes me think of the Mulder and Scully dynamics. Oh, yeah. I think they were the original uh, X-Files. I'm sure they would appreciate that. It was during the multiple interviews that John Keel began to realize that many of the eyewitnesses to the Mothman shared a common injury. Injury? For example, Connie Jo Carpenter was also in her car when she encountered the Mothman creature. The 18-year-old had been returning from Sunday services at church at 10.30 in the morning on November 27th of 1966. As she passed the Mason County Golf Course on the outskirts of New Haven, West Virginia, she saw the huge gray form of the Mothman. When she saw the glowing red eyes, she became entranced. She continued to watch the form of creature as it spread its large wings and slowly rose off the ground straight up like a helicopter. It then glided towards Connie's car with its eyes locked on hers the entire time. Oh, that's not creepy at all. It is very creepy. But she was able to break the hypnotic trance and she floored the accelerator and raced off. Her story was almost like a hundred others in Point Pleasant. And as she was talking to John Keel, what made it interesting was that during the interview, he noticed her eyes were red and watery. In fact, they were almost swollen shut. He believed that she was suffering from a condition known as Klieg conjunctivitis, also called actinic conjunctivitis. This is a medical condition that causes inflammation of the eyes from prolonged exposure to ultraviolet light. Huh. Interesting. Many ufologists have reported about this disorder in connection with eyewitnesses who have seen the aerial lights of UFOs. So much like when you stare at the sun and you can damage your eyes, also looking at the lights of a UFO seems to cause damage of ultraviolet lights to your eyes causing this form of conjunctivitis. Interesting. It is possible that the brilliant lights of the crafts reach into the ultraviolet spectrum. Also strange is that in this case, it was from the Mothman and its glowing red eyes that caused the same condition. This evidence suggested that the Mothman shared characteristics with the UFOs appearing in the skies over Point Pleasant. It was as though the Mothman was just as much from the stars as the unexplained night orbs. 
John Keel and Mary Heyer would continue to collaborate and gather information during the entire year, interviewing witnesses and having strange encounters of their own. Their theories of what was really happening within the small town would attract some unexpected attention. Some of these included meeting strange individuals, which would later be called Men in Black. So, is that where the movie got its name? Yes. Uh, the Men in Black movie franchise with Will Smith and uh, about aliens and a secret agency is based on Men in Black stories. What Men in Black are, are unknown persons who were reported to frequent the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. They were usually dressed head to toe in black suits, white shirts, black ties, and black shoes. That's the FBI. These guys were a little <laughs> bit different because they were all dressed the same. And they all appeared to be perfect in appearance, but out of style for the time of 1966 and 1967. These men were said to have asked people questions about the Mothman and then would tell them not to speak about it and that it was nothing to do with the paranormal. Mysterious strangers that reportedly attempted to threaten witnesses and reporters of the strange occurrences such as the Mothman into silence. Some of these men were reported as having dark features, an Eastern European look, and expressionless faces. Many times, their eyes were covered by dark sunglasses, and their movements were often appeared to be inhuman or clumsy in nature. The men in black usually traveled in groups of two or three and had a knack for knowing things about the witnesses that they taunted, things that the witnesses should have been the only ones to know. Some men in black were even reported to dress in Air Force or military uniforms, but they always seem to have something a bit wrong, such as the uniform's insignia would be in the wrong place, or they would be wearing the wrong shoes, or they would be driving a car that's not standard for a military officer. It was like they were trying to fit in, but they would just be a little bit off. The men in black are also said to have strange eating behaviors. Witnesses said that they didn't know how to use a knife and fork and that one waitress even had to come over and show the man how to cut his steak. It was also reported that they didn't know how to chew their food. They just kind of put it in their mouths and swallowed it. <laughs> Many thought of them as mysterious beings of unknown origins, poorly portraying that they were human. That's interesting. And during the time of the Mothman's 13 months, not only did they visit reporter Mary Heyer and question her about the creature, but they attempted to persuade her that there was nothing of importance to the story. They were attempting to kill the story at its source. One of them even was said to have threatened Mothman witnesses such as Connie Carpenter and Linda Scarberry. They were trying to silence every witness that came forward about the Mothman. One friend of Mary Heyer named Dottie Campbell spoke on the subject of the Men in Black in interviews. She said that she and Mary were very frightened by the Men in Black and that Heyer had mentioned to her friend that these strange men never blinked their eyes. Mothman witness Linda Scarberry said in an interview, quote, The MIB wore black suits, black hats, and sunglasses. They drove black cars, Cadillacs, I think. They looked like human beings, 
but their skin was somewhat transparent. You could see the veins in their hands very clearly. Their fingers were longer than a normal person's fingers as well. One man shook hands with the men in black and he said that it was awkward and shaking. They seemed not to know what to do or how to do the simple gesture of shaking hands. Another report from Linda Scarberry was that one of the black cars would follow them around. There were three men in the cars. The men in blacks went so far as to follow them through a drive-through of a restaurant, scaring them to about turning around and just looked in the mirror at them. A man and woman carrying a camera visited Mothman witnesses Steve and Mary Millette, wanting to take pictures of them. The Millettes took down the license plate of the car, but the police said that the number was non-existent. What? That's not... So, the MIB came to take pictures. Yes. The Millettes, who are in the car with the Scarberries, said that a, man, a strange man who was driving in a Volkswagen car came up to them asking if he could take a picture. Oh, so it wasn't necessarily the Men in Black. Well, here's where it got strange, is that the whole situation was very odd and unusual, causing the Millettes to write down the license plate number of the car. Then they gave it to the police office, and the police said that no such number. Wow. That's the strange part. Now, John Keel would also have his own problems with the Men in Black. In one afternoon in the spring of 1967, John Keel and a female friend were walking along 42nd and 3rd Avenue in New York when a stranger with a pointed face deliberately took a photo of them and then turned and ran away. The man was wearing an oversized sports jacket and slacks. So it seems like the men in black were tracking down everybody involved with the Mothman, no matter where they would be. Keel would actually spend the rest of his life skirting around the attention of these government agents or disguised aliens. That's crazy. Wow. So now we're off into our popular culture section. And last week I discussed many of the popular culture effects that have been caused by the Mothman. Such as the festival, there's numerous books, there's uh, a large number of movies. So for this week... I thought I would just give some movie recommendations involving the more alien feel to the situation that was occurring to Point Pleasant. By this, I mean the Men in Black movie franchise. <laughs> so weird. Yes. I never would have put that together with them. You never realized that that's what the movie Men in Black movies were based on? Well, yeah, with aliens, but not Mothman. Well, John Keel was the one, I th- I'm, I'm like 99% sure John Keel is actually the one who coined the term Men in Black. Well, obviously, if it was 1966. And he was the one that wrote about them and wrote what they were doing and gained a lot of the interviews about the strange behavior, kind of pointing that these are more than just government agents, that they might actually be agents from an intergalactic agency. Yeah. Now, the Men in Black movie franchise takes a more humorous spin on the government agents dressed in black suits and sunglasses. But they do utilize many of the stories about Men in Black to present a fun science fiction adventure to watch. I am going to re-mention the Mothman prophecies again because this episode was pretty much found in the book and the movies of Mothman prophecies. It's a great way to experience what the actual eyewitnesses went through 
I could do four episodes just from the book because John Keel does focus a great deal on the UFO connection with the Mothman. You want to know something bad? Promise not to divorce me? Oh, no. What? I don't think I've ever seen that movie. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, my. I have failed you as a husband. I'm sorry, but I like horror movies. Come join us next week when I have a new (laughs) co-host. The dog. Yeah, the Sam, because he's constantly whining in the background. He definitely wants to be heard. All right, so uh, now I've given you, during the same 13-month period, the UFOs that were being spotted, the grinning man, the men in black, the strange telephone calls, all of this with direct connections to the Mothman, showing that maybe the Mothman wasn't just an unidentified creature, but he was an alien or something that the aliens were hunting. That's really weird. I didn't think I'd really get into this episode, but yeah, I totally see this viewpoint. If you saw the Mothman prophecies, you would understand it more. Well, maybe we should watch it. I guess we will. It's hard for me to recommend a movie and then my own wife doesn't watch it. I'm sorry. All right. Well, for me, my final opinions is that Mary Heyer was often relentless in her endeavor to report the strange phenomenon going on in Point Pleasant. Some believe that this led to the men in black paying regular scheduled visits to her office in an attempt to putting a stop to her releasing the reports. So her life was in constant danger. Dang. Her saddest and most well-known story was the one in which she regretted ever having to write. This was the news article that she released on the collapse of the Point Pleasant Silver Bridge. That was sad. Yes, that killed 46 people on a late December evening on 1967. This was even harder on her because she knew these people of this community. Right. So she probably knew some of the 46 and then having to report that on top of, you know, all the other strangeness that was going on. Right. Mary Heyer died on February 15th of 1970, so just a few years after the collapse of the bridge. She was only 54 years of age, and she had worked for the Athens Messenger for over 27 years. She was dedicated to her family, her career, and her hometown of Point Pleasant. In 1975, John Keel dedicated his book, The Mothman Prophecies, to Mary Heyer and the people of West Virginia. His book combines the accounts of the strange phone calls and the mutilated pets and continued up to the story of the collapse of the Silver Bridge across the Ohio River. John Keel himself would die on July 3, 2009 in New York City at the age of 79. He left behind a legacy of significant influence within the UFO and the Fortean genre. He helped shape with the Mothman and Men in Black and the West Virginia UFO flap had an effect on America. Well, Being sure to watch the darkness for flying metallic discs with floating silver men, I suppose this is a good time to make our way back out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for our introduction music. Now, we would really... Now, we really like to ask for your support, and we don't even want to ask for money. 
You can help us out by leaving a review on the podcast provider you are listening to this podcast on to help promote the show. Even if it's just clicking on the number of stars to let us know that you like the episode, that helps us out and helps our show grow. We are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about aliens and the Mothman. Or maybe you have some stories of your own. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your experiences. We love stories and hearing about your personal Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We love stories and hearing about your own personal experiences. For those of you that need a daily dose of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries, we have a TikTok channel which gives a few-minute clips about a story involving some of your favorites and possibly some unknown creatures and ghosts. I really hope you enjoyed our part two for our stories about the Mothman and the UFO. Please come again for our next episode, part three, Mothman, the Supernatural. That's what I want. Well, then definitely come back next week for that episode. You just told me you were replacing me. Well, then you should have watched the Mothman prophecies before now. You have one week. Now, until then... Look to the night skies for the red orbs and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. I guess I won't see you again. It's a podcast. You can't see them anyways. Oh, yeah. Whatever.